0: Hey, good morning everybody and Merry Christmas. Yeah, wow, you guys, y'all are happy today. It's because you made it through the Mayan uh, doomsday prophecy, huh? That's why you're all stoked. All right, me too. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> let's turn in our Bibles. We're going to take a, a break from Ephesians this morning uh, and just go right into Matthew chapter 1. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 23. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. This is what Matthew writes. And he says this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, "'Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid.' to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel which is translated God is with us. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our entire lives are staked upon the truth of your word in this paragraph today. You are the one from whom the prophets declared the governments would sit upon your shoulders. Your origins are from eternity. You are the radiance of the Father's glory You came down where we are. You came to rescue sinners for your own pleasure and glory. And Lord, we pray that today, perhaps for some of us, this is the 20th Christmas message we've heard. I pray that you would make yourself real to us today. I pray that you would reveal your glory. For some of us that have never heard this story before in our lives, I pray that you would go beyond what I'm able to say about this. Pray that I would not bring in my speech or proclamation words of persuasive wisdom, but that this, your message, Lord, would be delivered today in a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith would not be based on man's wisdom, but on Christ's power. Pray that you would open our eyes to see what you are doing in our lives, in our church, and in the world. We need a taste of hope today. So we pray that you would give that to us even as we read your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce you to the three heaviest words that humanity has ever heard in their history. God with us. The three weightiest, widest, deepest, heaviest words that a man or a woman has ever heard in the history of hearing words, God with us. Now those words, arranged as they are, might not have any meaning to you depending on where you are at in life. It could depend on whether you are an atheist. Those words don't mean nothing to you. You might be a Christian that has been in church your entire lives. This is just the 20th time you've heard a Christmas message. In fact, you've heard dozens of messages on Matthew chapter 1 itself. This might not mean what it was intended to you today. It might not carry that same weight. Perhaps some of you are caught up in pluralism. This is good news, but there's other forms of good news. This might not carry the same weight. That was intended for it to have when you were listening to it. Perhaps some of you are uh, religious type people. You like, to, uh, make your, you like to make something out of your life, but you're just not into the, the whole uh, spiritual thing. Or perhaps you're the opposite. You're spiritual, but you're not so much religious. Depending on where you're at in life and depending on what presuppositions you have in your life, these words could mean a variety of things. But in order to know the weight in which they were intended, we got to understand what God meant them when He built up to this point. And God builds up to this point all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament makes little sense without the Old Testament. What I mean by that is the gospel proclaimed all throughout the New Testament is not good news unless you know what the Old Testament says about it, unless you know the backstory. So, what I want to do for half of the sermon today is give you the backstory. So, by, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 1, this will sink into your heart like a divine weight. I don't want to look through the Old Testament verse by verse, phrase upon phrase, looking for every single nuance that would, we would be here till next week at least. I just want to pull out one theme. And if there's one theme that you would leave with today, it is that God's purpose is to dwell with people. Some of you would say, what is a, uh, if you've ever thought about this, what is the mission of God? What, what actually gets God going? What, what thrills God? Some of you might say, well, it's to save sinners. Wrong. God saves sinners as a means to an end. But what's the end? Some of you may say, well, it, it's to make all things new. That's what, that's what he's going to do. Christ said that himself. But that's not the end goal. That's a means to an end. What is God's end? What is his purpose? What thrills him? What makes God get up at night, wake up, so to speak, if that's what he did? What's God's heartbeat? I think you would find, if you read the entirety of the Old Testament, you would find one theme that's very prominent. It is that God desires to dwell with people. God's purpose to dwell with people is explained by covenants. And that's what I want to take you through, and that's what I want to examine so that Matthew chapter 1 will look and appear as glorious as it did to Joseph. I want to talk about God's eternal purpose. God's purpose was to dwell with people, but all throughout history, all throughout the Old Testament, it has, so to speak, been held back a little bit because we can't handle all of God. We can't handle the undiluted presence of God all by itself. And so, as you go through the Old Testament, you see it being filtered in stages. For example, in Genesis, he starts by creating everything and he dwells in his creation as he walks with Adam. There's a lot of stuff going on in Genesis, but we, for the purpose of this message, can separate it into two parts. God creates, he dwells in, and as you progress through Genesis, everything begins to focus not on the cosmic proportions, not on the creation of the world, not on the, uh, the, the, giant, the gigantic flood, not on uh, Egypt and all of these things going on, But it begins to focus in on one man, Abraham, and his family. And so in one book, you move from God dwelling in creation to dwelling with a family. When God dwells with creation, he makes a covenant with Adam saying, you do this, you steward creation, you work, you do all that I tell you. Adam sins against him and he breaks that covenant. This is really what God means when he says to sin. It means you are not doing what I set out to do in this covenant. That covenant being the relationship of what it looks like for God to dwell with us. And so he moves on. The focal point begins to focus on Abraham and his family. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I will dwell with you and your family. And he establishes a covenant with Abraham out of grace. In Exodus we see Abraham's family turn into an entire nation. And God moves from dwelling in creation to dwelling with a family to dwelling with an entire nation. And he does it in two different ways. One is he does it by presenting the law. He says, I want to be in covenant with you. I want to be in relationship with you. And here's how it's going to work out beautifully, all right? He gives them the law. Then... They build a tabernacle. We can call this kind of the motor home of God's presence. It's a moving tabernacle, and God presents to them the law and the tabernacle. In the law, they would understand who He is, what He has done, and what He is about. The kavod, the weightiness of God's glory. But in the tabernacle, they would see His glory with their own eyes. They would feel it with their skin. They would smell it. They would sense it. It was there, the tangible presence of the living God we see throughout the Old Testament how that relationship with God intersected with people's lives. That's where we get the psalms. What does it look like when covenant love affects your emotions? Well, you get a psalmist crying out theology back to God. What does it look like when the fear of the Lord in this tremendous covenant directs your mind and your thoughts and your intellect? Well, you get the Proverbs. What happens when a covenant reveals to you your suffering? What does the covenant reveal to you about suffering in this life? Well, read the book of Job. What does covenant love reveal about sexuality? Read the Song of Songs. What does a covenant instruct about your pursuits, about your dreams in life, about your career, about your vocation, about your money, about your finances? Read Ecclesiastes. Despite all of the beauty in which God has designed a relationship to be, when he dwells among people, Israel creates a pattern in which they continue to break the covenant that God gave them. They disobey God. They say, you know what, I know that that's what you're saying, but I'm going to do my own thing. By the time we get to Leviticus, and this is usually... When you're doing a one-year Bible reading, this is if, if people drop off, this is about where they drop off. Because <laughs> in Genesis, you have the creation of all these glorious things. You have Abraham is awesome, Isaac, Jacob. Then you get to Exodus. There's all of these crazy feats. There's a pillar of fire and the smoke and the plagues. And then you get to Leviticus and it's bloody sacrifices. In just the driest prose. And then you get to chapter 2. You're like, maybe it'll pick up. Bloody sacrifices. Chapter 3. Bloody sacrifices. Okay, three's a charm. Now we're going to get into the meat of it. Bloody sacrifice. For 7 chapters. This is about where people drop off because it's gory. It's disgusting. It doesn't make any sense. We don't know how it connects to our life. But Leviticus is very brutally addressing an unanswered question and a tension left in Exodus. That is, how in the world can a holy God dwell with sinful people? That's all Exodus is, God dwelling with people. And it leaves this unanswered tension. How is that even possible? They continue to sin against God. They continue to rebel against God. He punishes them for a season, but then he always draws them back. How is that even possible? Leviticus answers it uncomfortably with seven chapters of sacrifice. In order for people to be with God in our sinful state, someone or something has to die. But the promise we see in Leviticus chapter 26 is that theme of dwelling. God says, I will place my residence among you and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. By the time we get to Numbers, the people are complaining and rebelling and choosing rather to stay in the wilderness than in the dwelling place of God. So God, in His mercy, chases them into the wilderness and dwells with them there. He gets so fed up that the old generation dies off because they continue to refuse to keep the covenant. So God says, You know what? Done with the old generation. I'm going to start over with a new generation. By the time Deuteronomy comes around, Moses sits on his deathbed and says to that younger generation, listen, don't be like the older crowd. Don't be like the people that your fathers that came before you would disobeyed over and over. I have hope for you. And he renews the covenant, he sends them off into the promised land. And Joshua, a young leader by the name of Joshua and his uh, uh, cohort, uh, Caleb and A bunch of other guys lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. So now they have the presence of God in written form, in tangible form. They have a moving tabernacle. They have the voice of God. They have the presence of God. They have the law of God. And now they have a young leader. They have a younger generation. And for the first time, they have a piece of real estate to boot. They have everything. This is pure utopia, right? Wrong. Judges follow soon. Judges, in my opinion, is one of the most depressing books in the Bible. It's violent, it's depressing, it's discouraging, and it is showing the systematic pattern of people continuing to rebel against God's covenantal rule. And so God punishes them according to the covenant. The people cry out for mercy. God sends a deliverer, and the pattern continues and continues on. Over and over. And that's the downward spiral of judges. God is saying, I can put humanity in a perfect environment with everything they want, even my own presence, and they will still choose their sin. Sin is the major problem. Samuel comes along and the people say, no, we've got it figured out. Our problem is that we can't see God. What we need is a physical leader to follow. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 through 7, all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, Samuel, you're old. Your sons don't follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demands sinful, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they said to you. They have not rejected you, They have rejected me as their king. So Samuel ordains a king. His name is Saul. Saul and every other king after him fail miserably to obey the Lord's commands because the kings, just like the rest of the nation, are sinful. By the time we get to kings, God dwells in a temple that he commands Israel to build. And so the tabernacle is no longer moving. It's static in one place. But we also see that the system of monarchy fails. The kings failed, just like everyone before them failed, because they cannot obey the Lord. They are full of sinners. In this period, there's schisms and division in the kingdom. They continue to break the covenant, and so God's last resort is to send Babylon to discipline them. Israel goes into exile for the first time. At this moment, Israel cries out saying, I thought we were God's chosen people. What's going on? I thought your name was written upon us. I thought you'd chosen us. I thought you were going to use us to bless the nations. Now Babylon has got us under their thumb. We have no nation. We have no king. We have no place to worship in a central location. Our entire identity is marred. What is going on? And in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of man's sin, the prophets begin to reveal more of God's covenantal love and his plan. Isaiah starts. Isaiah, under the power of the Holy Spirit, began to recognize Israel has yet to fully realize God's covenant. God is being faithful to Israel, but Israel is not being faithful to God. And he asks some of the same questions that were asked by Leviticus. How can this tension be relieved? God is a loving, gracious God. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to kill. He doesn't want to uh, pour out his wrath. And yet, he is also a just God, a holy God, and he has to deal with sin. How can this possibly end up good for Israel without them being poured, uh, without having the wrath of God poured out on them? God reveals to Israel. This is how I'm going to do it. I will bring out a remnant from that group. Jeremiah would come along and say, out of that remnant, because their hearts are wicked too, I will change their hearts and I will start with a new covenant. Hosea would give a a glimpse into what that new covenant would, would look like in one of the most vividly descriptive ways possible. God would command the prophet Hosea to take a prostitute as a wife. And he would say, Hosea, she's going to cheat on you. She's going to have kids with other people outside of marriage, uh, outside of your marriage. But what you're going to do is be faithful to her no matter what. And that is going to be an illustration of how I treat Israel, even though Israel cheats against me with all the idols of the land. The prophets begin to reveal God will orchestrate a new covenant in which the heart is changed and a covenant that's based on His righteousness, not our own. We also see in all of this that God isn't just after Israel, but through Israel, God wants to save all the nations. We see this in the prophet Joel. Who in chapter 2 verse 28 said, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. In chapter 2 verse 32, he said, then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And so it's not just the nation of Israel, it's through Israel that even us in this building get to partake in what was promised to Abraham. You will be blessed by me. Prophet Habakkuk would say, oh, I've got news for you. God isn't just wanting to dwell in a garden with Adam, nor is he just wanting to dwell with a particular family, nor is he wanting to dwell in a tabernacle or a temple or even a people group. He wants wants to eventually cover the entire globe with his presence. He would say in Habakkuk chapter 2.14, the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. There will we one day be a, a day where an ocean of God's presence engulfs all of humanity that calls on the name of Jesus. And yet, as Micah would warn, people still don't want God. They choose their own way. They choose their money. They choose their idolatry. They choose their false gods. They choose their, each other. They choose their leaders. They choose a variety of things. And so God must send someone to save them from themselves. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, Bethlehem, he says, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, it's from eternity. And so there is embedded in the Old Testament a promise that God must and will intervene and yet nobody knows how he's going to do it. The only clear option is that people will suffer the wrath of God for the sin that they committed against God. We have proven through history that we fail to obey God's commands. Every book after that, ending in Malachi, describes a sense of a a lack or a lostness of God's presence. The prophets begin to wail and moan over the sense of of absence of God. He's nowhere to be found. We have the building, we have the temple, but it's smaller than the original. There's no Shekinah glory in it. We don't hear the voice of God. Haggai uh, would write that Cyrus capturing Babylon would let the Hebrews go back to their homeland to restore their temple, but the Hebrews were totally over it. Only some of them returned, and those that returned were like, oh, we care more about our homes than the presence of God. God would say in Haggai chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? All of a sudden, nobody cares about the presence of God anymore. No one is crying out for it to fall upon them. In Zechariah, Zechariah notes that God's people feel insignificant, and who would wonder why when Malachi closes the Old Testament canon saying and uh, implying, excuse me, that God's presence all of a sudden has been taken away. Malachi was the last book written by the Old Testament prophets. And God remained silent for four centuries, leaving them in a place of uncomfortable despair. And this is where some of you feel right now. God is not speaking to you in your place of uncontrollable despair. And for 400 years, people cried out to God. They could not hear him. People sought out the prophets. They were not to be found. People read the scriptures. They did not, they did not hear the voice of God. For 400 years, silence. Until a newly engaged couple start to, waltz, uh, start to waltz around doing what newly engaged couples do. I don't know what they were doing. Perhaps shopping for a new camel with excellent gas mileage to go on their honeymoon. <laughs> I imagine Joseph was trying to secure his career uh, as handed down by his father. I imagine Mary was uh, daydreaming about what her life was going to look like with a a husband and a family, and all of a sudden, the news hit. She walks up to him and says, Joe, I'm pregnant. What do you think went on in that room? Who was it? Joe, it wasn't anyone. I didn't sleep with anyone. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess the stork is bringing this one, right? Because that's how this works. I didn't sleep with anyone. I've been faithful to you, but I'm pregnant. The Bible describes Joseph as a righteous man, meaning that he was probably heartbroken, but he took it upon himself perhaps because he was so in love with Mary, knowing that if it found out that she did this thing and was pregnant, even though she was engaged to him, she would be stoned for her crime, decides to secretly divorce her in order to spare her life. And in that moment, For the first time in 400 years, the room begins to light up. An angel of the Lord stops Joseph dead in his tracks and says, Joseph, do not be afraid. The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. This is what has been foretold. Joseph, what is happening in your household, all of human history has been waiting for since the dawn of creation. It's just as Isaiah described, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, and in that moment, the angel would deliver to him all that humanity has been longing for but could not achieve. God is with us. And Joseph, God is in the womb of your new bride. I imagine Joseph, apart from being ecstatic or dumbfounded, perhaps was asking the same question that the Jews before him would have asked. Wait, how in the world is this going to work? History has been left with an uncomfortable tension. How can a holy God dwell among sinful people without destroying them because of their sin, much less be inside of a woman? God answers in the birth of Jesus Christ with one line. If you want the job done, you got to do it yourself. So he comes to the earth and he does it himself. The Apostle John would say it perfectly. He would say the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. The law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen to this line. No one up until this point, no one has ever seen God. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, John. Didn't Adam see God in the garden? No, he walked with him and heard his voice. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Abraham see God when he was speaking to him? No, he see, He saw a theophany. He saw smoke. He saw the clouds. He saw that floating, flaming thing in that covenant uh, display. Well, what about Moses when he was in the cleft of the rock? Didn't he see God? No, he saw God's back. All throughout human history, God has only been able to give a glimpse of himself to people. And John says, no one up until this point has ever seen God But the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, our Lord, He has revealed Him. Some translations say that He has explained Him. John would have said He has exegeted Him. When you read a book and you explain it to someone that doesn't understand the book, you are exegeting the book to somebody else. God, who is the book, is being explained by the Son in perfect form. Hebrews would say that He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His nature, and He is God and very God. After four centuries, the silence has been broken. That's good news for us. Why? Because some of you feel like Zechariah. You can't feel God in your present situation. Some of you feel like Haggai. You can't see God in what you're going through this morning. Some of you are more like Malachi. You scream and you cry out and you pray, but you cannot hear the voice of God in your life. He is silent, man. It's funny how we are so prone to think of the Old Testament as irrelevant and archaic and sometimes culturally far removed, which is why we don't read it as often as the New Testament, I assume. But the irony is we chase after the same things that people throughout the Old Testament always did, and that's the whole point. We're chasing after the Garden of Eden. Perhaps for some of you, it's the perfect environment. If you could just have the perfect environment for your family, everything would be all right. Others of you look to family like Abraham. For you, it's Isaac. It's your kid whom you will vicariously live out your dreams through. Or it's the perfect family and the picket fence and the golden retriever. For others, it's nationalistic. It's as though you are looking to the nation of Israel, only it's whatever nation that you happen to live in. For others... It's all about the wilderness. You're Jack Kerouac on the road. You don't care what your destination is. You just want to be on the journey. Your journey is your salvation. Till you hit a rut in the road. Others of you are like the book of Numbers. You put all of your weight into your own generation. Well, I'm from the boomer generation. I have great work ethic. Well, I'm a millennial. We're the next great generation. We're going to make things happen. Others, you look to the promised land as your hope. You look to a piece of real estate. For some of you, it's a neighborhood. If I can just get out of this neighborhood and get to downtown, everything will be fine. For others, you're in the middle of a book of Judges. Autonomous, liberating freedom, apart from any authority, is your salvation. If you can just get to that and cling to it, all of your wildest dreams will come true. For some of you, it's, it's the monarchy that Israel sought. It's our leaders, meaning if the right leaders aren't put into office, your hope is crushed. For some of you, it's sex. For others, it's your intellect. You use your ability to think sharp to get ahead in life. And still others, it's entertainment to deaden our senses. It's success. It's work, it's our career, it's money, it's pleasure. We're living in the book of Ecclesiastes and our life is, as he said, meaningless. The Old Testament isn't outdated. It outlines the problem of humanity. We think that if we can change a number of things in our lives, our lives will in fact be happy. But the problem is none of those things are what's destroying your life. Your main problem in life is not the area of town that you live in. Your biggest problem in life is not your environment. It's not your education. It's not your paycheck. It's not the type of family that you grew up with. It's not the, the, uh, the, the benefits that you get at your job. It's not your relationships. It's not your IQ. It's not your success in this life. It's not whether you have a, a white picket fence or you live in a slum. It's not if you're constricted or restricted by a hierarchy or you're in control of your own life. Your biggest, deepest problem is your own sin. All of the Old Testament is written to describe that to all people everywhere. Our deepest problem is ourselves. We choose not to follow God. We choose to follow ourselves. Meaning then that our deepest need has to go far beyond our environment. Our deepest need has to transcend relationships. It has to transcend something as paltry as a career. Our deepest need is to be in the presence of the living God as we were meant to to be fully and completely human, drinking from the ocean of His presence. When you're out of that presence, things begin to fall apart. And that promise of His presence has been fulfilled in the birth of a baby. Christmas is the story of how God moves history to get to you. He moves kings. He moves governments. He orchestrates history. He moves men and women like channels of water. He directs kings how he wishes. In order to get to you, man, lady. (laughs) But the beauty of Christmas is that God wasn't born into a fleshly state simply to live alongside of you he was born to die. He was born to die and in so doing to pay the price for our sins, thereby making the covenant of grace work so that we can be in the presence of God free of charge. Amen. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11. All of this is according to God's eternal purpose which is accomplished in the Messiah Jesus our Lord as we worship this morning I want you to look back not on Israel's history not on world history not even on your family history but on your personal history and I want you to ask yourself brutally honest are any of those things that I have accumulated for myself are any of those things that I have done or set up, are any of them saving myself right now? Are they doing what I set out to do? Are they bringing me a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment? And if they are not, and if you are in fact this morning sick and tired of running in circles, fall at the feet of baby Jesus, who in such a humble estate is still the incarnate living God. In the words of choral master William Billings, seek not in courts nor palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. Jesus Christ is the promised Emmanuel. He is the gift of the gospel itself. Jesus Christ is God with us. Heavenly Father, We ask this morning that as we sit at your feet, as even some of us bow before the King of glory today, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would cause our hearts to bow. Something so crazy. Something so bizarre about seeing in the Incarnation Something so helpless as a baby and yet so transcendent and glorious as the Son of the living God. I pray that you would cause us to be able to process that, to leave us in a state of worship and to meet you. Lord, your word seems to declare and imply that our greatest need is your presence. Some of us need your presence today. I pray that you would bring it to us right now. As we call out to you, would you not be silent? Would you display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ? Heal us, justify us, sanctify us, set us free. Give us the ability to enjoy you and to glorify you forever. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.